Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, February 24, 2022. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in New York. Taylor Schwenk is producing from his home in Connecticut. Sarah Abbott is back in Nebraska. As we get started today, I want to say this is a frightening time in the world. Our hearts are with the people of Ukraine. That is top of mind today. This is a baseball podcast, something meant to be fun, a distraction, and we'll do the best we can for you along those lines. On the podcast today, we'll be hearing from players waiting for the resolution of the labor strife. Earlier this week, I went to Nashville, where a bunch of MLB players are working out, including Oakland's Tony Kemp, the Giants' Mikey Stremski, and Kirk Casale, and got their perspective about how this wait is playing out for them. We'll be talking with Kyler McDaniel about his prospect rankings, and Todd Radom will join us for the first of this year's weekly quizzes but I will turn the tables on him. First, an update on the labor situation. Yep, we're still in the same place. Let's hope that the folks involved in these talks understand how ridiculous they look within the context of what's going on in this country and in the world. Uh, In my opinion, the owners need to take a big step to the middle because they have more money, they own more of the financial landscape. The incrementalism in these talks this week is a horrific look. There is a deadline from the Major League Baseball's perspective. A spokesman came out on Wednesday and said if they don't have an agreement by Monday that there will be games canceled at the start of this season. Josh Young, a top prospect for the Texas Rangers, had surgery Wednesday to repair a torn labrum in his left shoulder, ending the third baseman's chance of being an option for the big league's opening day. That's a tough break for the Texas Rangers that his, uh, you know, his timetable's backed up. And sad news about Julio Cruz, who is an original Seattle Mariners player, went on to play for the Chicago White Sox. He passed away on Tuesday at his home at the age of 67. Taylor, what do you got? Buster, a couple of things to mention here. First of all, Baldman on campus, ESPN's Couch Basketball podcast is revving, roaring, and ready to go as March Madness is staring us in the face. Check out those guys. And when I say those guys, that means Seth Greenberg, Jay Billis, LaFonso Ellis, Game Day's Follically Challenge hosts as they get you ready and get your bracket ready for your office pools and all of that. We'll be doing a ton of preview work uh, on Selection Sunday. We'll be working late into the night to get that for you for episodes coming Monday morning after the brackets are released. So that is very exciting. You should listen to Swaggoo and Perk hosted by Marcus Spears and Kendrick Perkins. Every Tuesday this week, they discuss Zion Williamson's failure to reach out to CJ McCollum until it became public. Luka Doncic and how he's gotten back into shape, why a photograph from the weekend touched Perk, and why you have to put in the work to gain success. Ain't that the truth? Follow Swagu and Perk wherever you listen to your podcasts or watch the show on YouTube, and watch NBA Today at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on ESPN and the ESPN app, or listen to the show as a podcast. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes. The clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. 
Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Buster. Just go to Indeed.com Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Kylie McDaniel is ESPN's prospect and draft expert. And while a lot of us are in a holding pattern, baseball underneath the big leagues continues. Kylie, how you doing? Doing great, Buster. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, great to talk with you. Uh, top 100 prospects. Uh, this is uh, hit ESPN.com this week. Uh, Adley Rutschman of the Orioles at number one. What stands out to you about him as a player? Yeah, I've done uh, a little bit of uh, uh, media over on the Baltimore side. And their first question is, oh, so he's as good as Wander Franco, the number one prospect from last year. And I have to be like, whoa, 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 guys. Like Wander Franco is like uh, once every couple of years, like maybe more than that like a slam dunk, maybe all timer. And Adley Rutschman is like not quite there. I have him ranked as a 65 last year. I had Franco as a 70. So I've like intentionally made a scale where you can tell that this guy's just a little below that level. Uh, obviously a lot of Orioles fans are like, is this going to be Matt Wieters? Cause this was the same sort of amount of hype, a similar profile coming out of college and going into the big leagues. That is a possible sort of downside. I think that scene is basically a floor at this point. And to give people an idea of why he's first, if this works out, I don't think it's exactly the same player, but it could be a Buster Posey level overall package. Even though I think Posey was a better pure hitter, uh, Rush was basically plus at everything that you need to be good at as a catcher and has the track record uh, is also a later bloomer from a cold weather state played a little football, like has all the markers you'd want to see to be fine with him being a couple years older than some of the guys just below him on the list. Now, folks I talk to say he's a big leaguer right now, especially when you cast him against what the Orioles have. Uh, what, what do you see in that regard? When, when do you expect to see him in the big leagues? Yeah, it's one of those things that's tricky to say, like Acuna, obviously now in retrospect, seemed like he was probably ready in double A before he got to triple A. And, you know, Luis Robert, like it took a little bit of time and, you know, Luis Brinson wasn't ready. Like it's not always easy to tell just by triple A performance. But yeah, I'm talking to guys with Baltimore. It's sort of like, yeah, we haven't really found like a hole in this yet. Like they're you know kind of crossing their fingers as they say that. Like there's not really a negative unless you want to say there's not a 70 or 80 grade tool necessarily. Uh, but yeah, he's basically done everything he can do to be big league ready. And, you know, we, we both know that that doesn't mean he gets called up the day that he's deemed big league ready, but there's not a reason to leave him down for like half a season. Uh, I, I, I would imagine if, if there's right in the world, he'll play at some point in the first half of this season. 
So let me ask you this, uh, you know, this uh, just because you deal with prospects and the issues of uh, service time manipulation, tanking, all those things. You've, you've had conversations about those. Are, do you feel like there's going to be pressure on teams like the Orioles to promote uh, players like Rutschman as soon as that they, you know, that they're ready to be in the big leagues more than ever? Because I, I feel that. I don't know if they'll necessarily compel the teams to to do that, but I feel like at the outset of this year, there will be that kind of pressure on teams. Yes, and I think we've already seen that because there wasn't really uh, a lot of a track record. Like Jason Hayward was the example everybody used for a while, and then all of a sudden one year it was Chris Paddock, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Pete Alonso were all sort of chosen. And so I think the um, the sort of uh, uh, approach that teams were taking was the sort of Jeff Lunau, McKenzie-influenced NBA, like, I have no reason to call this player up. I get an extra year if I think he's really good for two weeks in the minors. And then I think it shifted where it was like, if you want to be very hard-headed about that approach to things, you'll still get there. Like Ronald Acuna and Chris Bryant, that exact thing happened again. But I think it's shifting a little bit in front offices where there are some, like if Dayton Moore was in this situation, I don't think he would take advantage of the situation. I don't know how many teams are like that, but I think it used to be single digits. And I think it may be now double digits or close to it of teams that would sort of do the right thing. And I think the Kevin Mather comments also like sort of shown a very stark light on this that wasn't necessarily there for a casual fan. So you led perfectly into my question about your number two prospect, Bobby Witt Jr. Um, you know, the numbers I always look at when I you know, look at prospect developments for hitters are walks and strikeouts. And I'm looking at he's commanded the strike zone for a player that young. And I'm like, you know what? That's the type of player I could see Dayton promoting to the big leagues, depending on, of course, uh, you know, you've got this weird situation with the truncated spring training, which is going to have an impact on on a lot of prospects. Bobby Witt Jr. is going to be in the big leagues pretty soon, yes? Yeah, and they were already pretty aggressive with him, leaving him in big league spring training last year when I didn't think they would. He, he was in that weird spot where I think he improved a good bit at the alternate site when there wasn't really uh, uh, competition and other teams watching them. And so a lot of guys, I mean, we saw it with Prado and Melendez in that system, took huge strides in 2021 that I think there were signs in 2020 but you just couldn't really take it seriously because a lot of these guys are playing like sim games against the same pitchers for three straight months and, and no one's keeping stats. Like you can't really take that stuff seriously, especially when the team is the only uh, entity telling you about what happened at those games and they're incentivized to lie to you, even though I don't think a lot of them were. Uh, and so with Witt, like he went straight from rookie ball to double A after crushing spring training. So they've already been aggressive with him more than I would have been. Because as you were pointing out, like the question with him at a high school and after rookie ball was, does he swing too much? Does he have a little too loose idea of a strike zone? And then he went straight to double A. And it's like, I mean, obviously not. Like maybe just one of those things that you see in short samples when he's not being tested. He'll chase a little bit. And then he gets thrown in as essentially the age of a college junior. And he like demolishes triple A while playing a plus shortstop. Like it's sort of like we haven't found the ceiling yet. So I think you have to keep challenging him to figure out like where this is. And obviously that has to now lead to the big league. So I, I think he's somewhat a Rutschman. He's done everything you can do to prove he's big league ready. I don't know what else he could do. That doesn't mean he's going to be like scorching hot his first three weeks in the big leagues, but he's done as much as he can prove. Give me the name of a player that in your eyes really jumped from uh, when you did your rankings in 2001 or excuse me, 2021 to 2022. So there's three guys I think that describe that. I mentioned uh, Nick Prado and NJ Melendez, the catcher and first baseman uh, for the Royals that were both, I mean, they were about as bad as you could be and still be considered a prospect. Prado was a first round pick out of Southern California high school as a first baseman. Melendez, a second round pick uh, out of South Florida as a catcher. Both had a lot of tools, a lot of hype, started out okay, were really bad in high A, like to the point where you're 
like don't even really want to talk to the Royals about it. Like you're just like, yeah, I know what they're going to say. I know what teams say when players are this bad. I know they've been good in the past. Like we, you know, really like some of these players uh, when I was with the Braves uh, in, in those drafts. Uh, and then the, like Melinda's led the entire minor leagues, including like 28 year old lifers and triple a in home runs as a catcher. And he was seen as like a catch over hit guy in the past. And Prado was also seen as he was the first base. He's got a hit and then he didn't hit. And then I think he hit like 35 homers. Like it's sort of, uh, dumbfounding. The the most notable one, I think, to the casual fan is Anthony Volpe, who uh, with shortstop with the Yankees, who was drafted as sort of a skills over tools high school shortstop. He was the second most famous guy on Jack Leiter's high school team. And there was like, I wouldn't say I thought it was going to be Cito Culver, but like there were some elements of that where the Yankees were taking a guy that they believed in the between the ears stuff at more than the tools. And they sort of liked the track record, which he had more than Culver, but it was a guy they liked more than anybody else. And then last year, I mean, obviously proved them right. And I think hit for more power than I thought he would ever hit for. And like all the okay tools that were sort of outpaced by the skills, the tools and performance are now way outpacing the soft skills. But it's good to know that he has those when it'll come time, you know, in New York, when you need to have all the elements to be able to withstand all the pressure there. So I have to qualify this, uh, you know, because I'm not suggesting that he's going to accomplish what this player accomplished in the big leagues. But the, the rhetoric around Volpe reminds me so much of what I hear about, heard about Derek Jeter in the early 90s, mid 90s, uh, before he got to the big leagues, which is he's a leader. He's a guy who's you know, you're perfect for the market, perfect for someone who can handle a lot of scrutiny, somebody that you can build a team around. You know, Hal Neuhauser, who famously was the Astros scout who recommended the Astros take Derek Jeter uh, his, uh, in his write up to the Astros. He said this this player. Uh, is going to be the centerpiece of a championship team for years to come. Astros pass on him. Hal Newhouser walks away. I, I hear the same rhetoric around Volpe, who I've never spoken with, but it it absolutely jumps out at me how much they love this kid. And I yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. If if you were to like draw how you'd want a player to develop, similarly with a pitcher, you'd want them to throw around ninety, not have all the physical tools, but know how to pitch, learn how to do all these things, and then magically throw a hundred, which is basically what happened with Jacob Degrom. Uh, if you could draw it up for a hitter, it doesn't happen as often this way. You'd want them to be like the leader of the team that can play shortstop and like be the center of everything. But, you know, maybe be the number two hitter that doesn't hit for power, be the number seven hitter. That's more sort of leadership than he is raw tools. And then the tools just show up and he's already got all the stuff between the ears to deal with that. But like, if I were to tell you like who was the last position player I could think of where that happened to them, I can't even really think of one because usually the really good players in the big leagues were either just complete nobodies and then turn into a player like Jose Altuve or Matt Carpenter, or they're like Justin Upton or Bryce Harper and they get anointed when they're 13 years old as the best player anyone's ever seen. There's not really a lot of those in-betweens like is pretty good for a long time and then becomes a potential star. Uh, so this is not completely unprecedented, but it's weird enough that, you know, guys like Jeter and those sorts of names coming up around Volpe like isn't crazy because like I don't really know who to compare him to okay uh tell me a player that you think is going to have big impact uh, on your list your top 100 list in the big leagues this year Ooh, that's a good one so the the guy you may have experienced this before but uh writing like twenty five thousand words breaking down these players you get a little delirious they start kind of looking at the <laughs> to each other i end up writing like a blurb it's like yeah this guy's like not gonna be a superstar but he's close to the big leagues and he might be pretty good like i wrote that like 12 times uh the guy where i uh broke out of that was o'neill cruz uh with the pirates and the espn copy desk didn't appreciate that i endorsed him running for president so that didn't make it into the final edit uh but he played in two games in the big leagues last year 
as a six foot seven left-handed hitting shortstop played shortstop at every inning of both games in his first game in the big leagues, he hit the second hardest ball a left-handed hitter hit in the entire season. Second only to one of Shohei Otani's hits. Uh, and then in the second game, he hit a home run. Uh, I think he hit it into the river in right field off of a pitch well below the strike zone from Michael Gibbons. And that was the sort of jumping off point to try to explain to people how unique of a talent he is, that he is a pretty good shortstop at six foot seven, legit 80 grade Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton level raw power as a left handed hitter. And the reason he hadn't been like top 10 on these lists is because no one's ever seen a guy like this. You assume he couldn't have played shortstop a couple years ago, and now he's proven he can. The comp I got from a scout that saw him play shortstop in high A is he looked like an octopus because he couldn't quite gather exactly how all of his limbs were working together to do this. Uh, and now he's in the big leagues. And the the other weakness of his game is, again, he, he swings a lot. And so he's going to chase out of the zone. But he's already proven, like, I compared his arms to boom mics. Like, you're not exactly sure where the limits are here because he can technically reach any pitch. And he has arguably the most raw power in the big leagues. So, like, how exactly does that not work unless he's just swinging at balls in the dirt that he literally can't hit? So my, my thought was, does he become the Giannis Antetokounmpo of the big leagues where he just leads SportsCenter every night on the crazy thing he did on the field and sort of, you know, rides the crest of the, you know, Javier Baez, just highlights mm-hmm. even from ordinary plays thing. And so you can kind of see where I got excited about this when there's just a bunch of guys that are otherwise, like, you know, somewhat forgettable in the, in the, in the scheme of all of baseball history. Yeah, that's a great comp with the honest. I, lo- I love that because, uh, yeah, that's going to be the question about his body and how it can do baseball type things. Uh, yes. You know, someone especially at that position. All right. Um, you know, th- it's a good reason why you're delirious because you've had not only the prospect rankings, but also the draft. Uh, tell me about, you know, who's at the top of the board. I know uh, one of the names, a son of a guy who should be in baseball's Hall of Fame. I keep wanting to say son of a Hall of Famer, but I'm just like, just because he should be doesn't mean that he is, even though I like him to be. Uh, Yeah, so I was talking to my editors and we were like, all right, so obviously for the casual fan, how does the draft stuff cross over? Last year, Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker, it was like very easy to be like, oh, everyone's seen him on TV. They're really good. They're on the same team, dominating for years, College World Series, like all these things made that like a very easy sales pitch. And he was like, so what's the pitch this year? And I was like, oh, it's going to be people feeling old because the sons of guys they remember their first season in the big leagues are now going to be in the draft. Number one player on my board, it's basically a toss between him and another player, but I I lean this way, is Drew Jones, which is the son of Andrew Jones, should be Hall of Famer. Uh, And he's in a toss-up with uh, another, another, they're both in the Atlanta area, high school players. Another one is named Tamar Johnson, who's like a second, third baseman, uh, left-hand hitter, mature frame, really advanced hit power. And I was very impressed with myself that I came up with a Raphael Devers comp because he's got the he's got the handsy all fields plus power plus hit long track record of hitting. I remember seeing Raphael when he was 15 at uh, some of these um, pre-signing showcases. And it is like eerily similar. Uh, and then Drew is like a rangy 6'4", is a plus-plus defender in center field. I know shocking to hear. Uh, is already a plus runner, can really hit, hit at all the events. You can maybe use a couple tweaks on a swing, but obviously it's such great feel that the hitting is not an issue. Uh, and then continuing on the uh, sons of big leaguers, uh, at number 12, I have Jackson Holiday, uh, son of Matt Holiday. He's committed to Oklahoma State, where his uncle is the head coach, and Matt is a volunteer assistant. So, you know, that's an unprecedented amount of leverage in the draft. We got Daz Cameron with his, you know, well-off father uh, gave him a lot of leverage in the draft. He wasn't going to play for his dad at Vanderbilt. So uh, that's going to be a tough sign, uh, but I've got him, you know, 12th. So I think he'll probably have his price met. 
And then down at number 27, we have Justin Crawford, son of Carl Crawford. And not on the list, but definitely draftable is Carson Sabathia, son of CeCe Sabathia. So any one of those can probably make you feel old. But like even I remember seeing the beginning of these guys' career. So it's definitely effective at this point. Yeah, I always tell the story about watching uh, David Weather's son, Ryan, playing catch when he was like eight years old and being like, okay, that guy's going to play in the big leagues. And I felt the same way watching Jackson Holiday, like take swings on the field and like, yep, we're going to be talking about him in years to come and telling Matt that. And Matt, you know, who's so understated, just kind of giving me a smile. Uh, again, you can see all of Kylie's lists on ESPN.com. Um, you know, great work as always. Before you go, because you're in the Atlanta area, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Uh-oh. I'm going to ask you the question I mean, in 45 seconds. Do you think Freddie Freeman's going to stay with the Braves? Because I got to tell you, you know, a month ago, I started hearing a lot of rumblings within the sport that he wasn't going to. And then I had conversations yesterday, which convinced me, nope, he's going someplace else. What do you think? I also, without uh, reporting anything, I've heard a lot of rumblings, especially in the last couple of weeks. And I am now down on the put me down for no. I don't think it's going to happen. I think everything is pointing in the direction uh, of him leaving. I don't know where he's going to land yet. Obviously, since, you know, talks can't be occurring. So I'm not not going to pinpoint where he's going to land, but there's a lot of places I think that would like to have him. And I don't get the impression that Atlanta is like falling over themselves to make this happen. So you, I think you led the charge here. And I think some of the stuff you were hearing is now some of the stuff I'm hearing. Yep. Um, I, I, I'm glad that uh, you and I are in agreement in that just because it, it you know, it, it, uh, I feel better, you know, given your, uh, your base of knowledge um, Dodgers. And I think two teams to watch very carefully, maybe surprise people, Toronto Blue Jays, and the New York Mets, both those teams have first baseman in theory. But if you wanted to move those guys, Pete Alonso, uh, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., off of first base, potentially more DH, the way to do it is to get a star. And Freddie would be a star. So just something to watch as we move forward. All right, Kylie, thank you. Yep, thanks for having me. The sound of batting practice in an indoor cage. Just one of the sounds you typically hear in each of the 30 big league camps at spring training. Except that particular explosion of bat against ball captured earlier this week was not in some corner of the Grapefruit League in Florida or Arizona's Cactus League. That was the sound of major leaguers working out at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. As they wait for the end of the owner's lockout and a resolution from baseball's labor stoppage. That was the sound of Giants outfielder Mike Yastrzemski throwing batting practice to veteran free agent Phil Gosselin. They're just two of the many players trying to stay ready when or if baseball resumes. Here's Yastrzemski talking about how the wait for baseball is for him. Stressful. <laughs> uh, it's, it's also one of those things where it's tedious. You know, you, you just want to be doing what we love to do playing baseball and figuring this whole thing out so that way we can get back to some normalcy and especially with the way that the last essentially two seasons has gone you know it's been a little sporadic in in how things have been handled and so we had to do what we had to do then but now that it's up to us and you know none of not really any of the COVID restrictions are holding this back you know it's all of our own decision making and discussion discussions and negotiations and so um, from that sense it's it's a little tough to to handle not being ready to play right now for a lot of teams february 21st was supposed to be the first day of full squad practices and instead these players are here helping each other through loosely structured workouts 
When the owner's lockout began on December 2nd, club staffers are ordered to not communicate with players. Before that, Yastrzemski and Giants teammate Kirk Casale were provided a training schedule that covered 10 weeks. They've gone through that, and now they're left to make up their own workouts while they wait. Casale will work out four out of five days this week, weightlifting, hitting, throwing, catching, and then take the weekend off, waiting and waiting. Here's Casale. You have like this internal clock, and it's like you, you can kind of feel when um, the off-season workouts are getting boring, they're getting dull, and you're just like, you can you sense the buildup to spring training, and um, it just, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not what we want. And we, we would rather be in, you know, Florida, Arizona, getting ready to, um, you know, compete and, and, you know, play in front of a bunch of loyal fans. Here's Oakland infielder Tony Kemp. At the same time, you know, we all know what it takes to get our work done. And I think the, the cool thing about, uh, you know, being here and doing our own workout regimen is, um, you know, we know what it takes. We know what our body takes at this age. And, um, you know, when you're 22, 23, you're probably trying to work out a little different th- differently than you were when you were, um, you know, 30 versus 22, 23. It's, it's a whole different ballgame. So. Uh, it's, it's definitely cool to have that inspiration, especially when you're walking in the weight room and, uh, you know, guys are already in there at 8 a.m. Getting, getting their lifts in and getting their work in. And uh, it's just a it's a good environment that I've loved being a part of ever since 2013. Yastrzemski, Casale, Goslin, and Kemp are part of a group of players who've lost a lot of financial ground since the 2016 labor agreement. The veterans, the middle class players who haven't gotten monster multi-year contracts. I asked Yastrzemski if he feels like his labor battle is aimed to help players like himself. I try not to think about it that way because then I get emotionally involved. Um, and I like to try and think of issues like this subjectively because there's a thousand players that are essentially affected by it. And yeah. so to think about it from one side of the spectrum is really not fair in my mind. I think I would like to think of, you know, uh, international players, how are they going to get affected by it? How are older guys going to get affected by it? How are the young guys who get their chance when they're 19? Because it's not fair to to look at those guys and say, you know, oh, they're going to make their money. It doesn't really matter. It's like, well, they could also get hurt along the process and only have a three-year period where they end up playing, even if they're a superstar at that age. We need to think about as a game and a organization is that we can't just look at one side of the spectrum and say it's good for this player. Like we have to look at the whole and say, how do we make this game better? So that way we get more fans, we get more interactions, we find different ways to bring the game to different countries and make people excited about baseball season. Because for a little bit now, it almost feels like people only get excited about baseball because there's nothing else on. And I think that needs to change. People need to be excited about the game and and because it is thrilling. One of the more challenging aspects of the shutdown for players is to answer the questions from family and friends who want to know what's going on because the players really don't know what's going to happen. Tony Kemp talked about that dynamic. You know, it's funny. I I think uh, as of late, I've kind of just been like, nope, no news yet, but I think something to get done soon. That's kind of been my latest uh, And that's just the, the mantra you'll say. That's, that, that's what I'm going to say. Uh, I don't know what's going on, but I'm sure something to get worked out here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but, you know, I'm an optimist, so I think that, you know, everything's going to be all good. Do 
do you uh, almost have to wall yourself off from like reaction of, of uh, friends and family? A hundred percent. I think you know when you get questions like that. Obviously, you don't know all the answers, so um, and they're probably not happy with the answers that I'm giving them. But you know that's okay. But I honestly don't try to get too in depth with it because I don't want to say anything wrong. But they can do their. They got the internet. They can do their own research and find their own information. Yeah. Yastrzemski talked about what he believes players are fighting for. I would say we're we're fighting to create a better product for the fans. And I think that's what is important to grow the game because you look at some of these other sports that have done a really good job. You look at basketball first-handedly, how well the game's grown. Um, soccer's growing incrementally. And these are the things that I think we've noticed as players, there's ways for the game to get better, more enjoyable for the fans, more competitive. Here's Casale. I think it's a shame that, you know, this narrative is kind of taking over what's what's actually the coolest part of the game. I think we're in a, a golden age of baseball right now, just in terms of who who is playing. I mean, you see these big contracts, and that's great. And, you know, probably well-earned. But, like, the numbers that they're putting up, the, you know, home runs are, are, yeah. are sky high. And it's because we're practicing that way. I mean, people are throwing harder than they've ever thrown. And that makes the game borderline impossible for some people but i think it's entertaining i think people have just been able to maximize what their you know output is and, and how they can contribute to a game and here's tony kemp i think at the end of the day i've always been a big believer in um you know control you, you can control and right now you uh, you know if you're not there really in the negotiations in the room you really can't do anything about it so um control what you can and you know the things that we can control right now is getting our mind body ready to go for another season and you know that's what i've been working on kemp and kisali and yastrzemski and many other players keep working out and they wait like the rest of us Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, it's always great to talk with you. Welcome to 2022. Buster, thank you so much. I cannot help but think of the fact that when we last left off, uh, you were turning things over to A. Bartlett Giamatti. The leaves clogging the gutters, winter bearing down upon us. That was, of course, in late October, and here we are. Yeah, here we are waiting to see if baseball restarts again. Uh, and I'm not looking for a reaction from you for this. You and I are not in the negotiation room. I do feel like at some point, the way these two sides are cornered, that uh, it's a lot like 2016. I think they're going to rush to make a deal. I don't think it's going to be good for the players. The owners are the ones I think who have to take a big step forward uh, in the talks into the middle ground to, to keep this thing going. Uh, if in fact they do get it going, uh, tell us tell us about changes in uniforms that are forecast for 2022. Well, Buster, we have a couple of a couple of small items, but the one big item on our list, of course, is the Cleveland Guardians, which I would characterize as kind of a spare look. Now we got a, a look at this. Uh, when it was released last year, rather abruptly, I will put it at that. And, uh, you know, these things take on a, a completely different look once we see actual athletes inhabiting the uniforms 
But uh, I don't think it's going to look all that different. The colors are identical to those worn by the Cleveland Indians. The name itself is pretty similar. Um, Additionally, we've got the Kansas City Royals, who have changed things up a little bit, at least on their road uniforms. They're going with a bold block Kansas City, and they will be going back to powder blue uniforms with script Royals, a la Bo Jackson. Got to love those, right? Pine tar days. Uh, And we've got a couple of teams commemorating significant milestones. Buster, the Baltimore Orioles are going to be wearing a sleeve patch commemorating the 30th anniversary of Camden Yards. Does that make you feel old? Uh, That makes me feel really old. Uh, And I remember, you know, going to the Camden Yards in its first year in April of its first year and just being wowed by the ballpark. Yeah, 30 years. And uh, let's just hope they win a few games down there in Baltimore this year. Well, With larger world events pressing down upon all of us, there are some things that are just not going to change. And I suspect the Orioles situation is one of them. Uh, We've got the Texas Rangers commemorating their 50th season upcoming or 50th anniversary. That's always a confusing thing. Is it ordinal or (laughs) whatever the, the designation? But the Texas Rangers played their first game in April 1972. 50 years to bring the Dodgers. Commemorating the All-Star Game, which will be played at Dodger Stadium in July. The first All-Star Game in that beautiful ballpark since 1980, which is really just bizarre to me. They have not wanted the game until now, I guess. And finally, the Houston Astros will be wearing a commemorative sleeve patch for their 60th anniversary. And it will incorporate the Colt 45s. They were Colt 45s and then Astros and, of course, Now they are American League Astros. So there you go. Not a lot of huge changes necessarily. Nike still finding their way into uh, what things look like. And one other thing I would be remiss if I didn't point it out. The Field of Dreams game will be played again in Iowa. And I will say that the uniforms are going to look luscious. Okay. I I would love to know what's behind that. But we will find out. Uh, as we go along here, as you were talking and you were, you know, pre- uh, presenting all these, uh, you know, changes and patches and those things for this year, I thought of a rating system for you might be paintbrushes, right? A five <laughs> paintbrush rating from Todd Radom, with yeah. perfect one, not so much. Maybe we can come up with a system this year as we talk about some of this. I like it. Okay. Um, earlier this week, we got word from the New York Yankees that they are retiring number 21 for Paul O'Neill. And I must say, you know, I covered uh, the last four years of O'Neill's career when I was at the New York Times. He's one of my favorite players to cover. I'm really happy for him. Uh, when I did a book on the Yankee dynasty, um, I because I felt like O'Neill was so much at the heart of that team, I actually structured my book around Paul O'Neill uh, packing up his locker after the Yankees play the end of the 2001 World Series, his son, Aaron, at that time was like 11, 12 years old, bouncing around, you know, grabbing stuff in the locker, you know, Paul cleaning it out. That to me was a turning point. I must say that, you know, when I saw that they retired his number, I thought, boy, 25 years ago, this not wouldn't even be considered, um, you know, that a player who's not a Hall of Famer would have his number retired by the Yankees. This is not this is something gradually over time that is evolving with the Yankees as it was is with the Hall of Fame, I think. Yeah, I think you nailed it perfectly. It is that inner circle Hall of Fame discussion versus who is a Hall of Famer. And uh, Buster, there is no question when Paul O'Neill arrived in the Bronx uh, for Roberto Kelly, that was kind of the beginning of of 
it was a turning point, an inflection point, and you could see it then. Uh, and uh, you know, some franchises retire numbers. I would say willy nilly to use a phrase. The Yankees have traditionally not been like that, but uh, this this core. I mean, beyond the core four, right? Even Jorge Posada. Uh, Bernie Williams, right? I mean, the Yankees have now a ton of retired digits. I, I have to interject with a very quick Paul O'Neill story. When my late grandmother was getting very old, a lifelong New Yorker, Manhattanite, she stayed home and she watched Yankee games as she was in her late 80s. And, uh, you know, I would go over and visit with her. And I remember her uh, saying to me, tell me about Paul O'Neill. I said, well, you know, he's an intense player. He's really, uh, you know, he, he, he comes at it with, with just so much fervor and passion. Just why is he always so mad thinking about him with water coolers and all that kind of stuff. So I will forever think of that, but the warrior and uh, listen, if you're the Yankees, anytime you can hearken back to those championship years right now, because it's been a hot minute for them, you do it. Yeah. And I got to say, you know, as someone that I covered, he was so much fun because of that, uh, that inner drive that he had. Uh, and, and he didn't like attention. You know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't really care if his name was in the newspaper. Um, if he went five for five and you walked into the clubhouse, he wouldn't be around at all. Like he couldn't, you'd have to like get a PR person to go and see if he had already run out of the stadium you know, and headed back home. If he went over five with three strikeouts, made an error, he would be waiting for reporters to say, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm just awful. I don't, you know, Jose Cardinale was the first base coach, you know, would tell me stories about how O'Neill would make an out and he would go past first and his head would be down. He goes, I'm never going to get another hit. Like he, the self lament in him was great. And he also was incredibly and probably still is very superstitious and I remember in my last year walking up to him uh, and saying to him, hey, Paul, I heard this great stat from Elias. And he was like, Buster, you know, I hate that. I don't talk about things that are going well. It's a bad. And I said, no, Paul, you've already accomplished this. It was like a combination of home runs and strikeouts for a player his age. He goes, oh, OK, what is it? <laughs> and I, you know, I love covering him. He was great. And I'm really happy for him that that happened. Totally. And I just think, you know, again, I'm a New Yorker, uh, went to a lot of Yankee games in the 90s, particularly in the early 90s, those stump Merrill years, let's call them. And this was a guy who came here and really, you know, embraced New York and the fans loved him back just as much. I remember sitting in the bleachers all those years with the roll call and uh, he really embodied those teams uh, of, of, you know, certainly Hall of Famers like you know, Jeter in the bunch um, to name a name, but, uh, you know, workman like and, and again, beloved by real Yankee fans. Not that I'm a Yankee fan, but I know a game when I see it and Paul O'Neill had game. All right. Uh, because we haven't started the regular season, we're not going to start with a weekly quiz operated by you. I'm going to run it this week. I'm going to turn the flip the switch on you. Oh I'm going to have you against Taylor. Uh, and here's the trivia question. You ready, Todd? Let's go. Okay. Whose number was first retired by the Yankees? Was it A, beloved manager Miller Huggins, who died in 1929? B, Babe Ruth? C, Lou Gehrig? 
D, Hall of Fame pitcher Herb Pennock. Again, which player, uh, which person had their number retired first by the Yankees? Miller Huggins, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Herb Pennock. Uh, I, Taylor, I'll let you go first. Let's go with Lou Gehrig. Okay, Todd. Number four, Lou Gehrig. That's right. Yes. You both got it right. I, I was yes. trying to word it such that I could fool you, but both of you were totally locked in. Maybe we need to do this all season long. Turn the tables. It's a different kind of year. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it, it, it does. It does feel like it. And, you know, Taylor's probably going to endorse me running the uh, the quiz because mine are going to be a lot easier, apparently, Taylor. Yeah, you're the, you're the new chief executive, you know, emergency powers. That's a thing that gets thrown around a lot these days. So, oh, my go, goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I, you know, in preparing the quiz for this year, I obviously need to face the fact that maybe Taylor is not the most passionate baseball fan in the world. No knock at you, Taylor. It's just a fact. Buster, <laughs> on the other hand, embedded in the industry for as many years as you have been. It would not be fair to ask certain questions of Taylor that I know Buster is just going to know by rote uh, color questions. I can't oh. ask those. Right. So yeah. I'm really between a rock and a hard place when it comes to putting this quiz together. But I have a master spreadsheet. I have already started to populate it with what I think are appropriate questions. And I, as I always say every week, you got a one in four chance, right? 25%. It's pretty good. Exactly. And Sarah, you know, maybe uh, we'll work Sarah in as well. Maybe we'll have Sarah versus Taylor at some point. She can, uh, she can step in. All right, Todd, like great it. to talk it's with kidding. you. Great seeing you. Welcome to 2022. Oof. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a fine Thursday. We've got some more uh, Bleacher Tweet therapy here. Nick Lurkins at Banker DJ Nick writes in, who will save baseball? We need baseball. Maybe James Earl Jones. Oh, boy. Uh, it's it's got to be the owners that take a big step forward. There's no doubt about it. You know, we'll see if they if they do that. 
I think in the end that the, the players are going to collapse into another bad deal. Mm. T Jones is up next at TNJ six. Two nine T Jones writes in Buster. I dreamed that a bear chased me into the woods and Mike Trout was there with a snow shovel and scared him away. We weren't in Europe, but I think it might have been Africa or Asia. Wondering what you think this means. I think our bleacher tweeters are all having these like dreams where they're just as scared that they're not going to get any baseball. So maybe the bear is like the fear of, you know, no baseball. Essentially, Mike Trout is there to save the day. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think they're filling in the void of no spring training, no updates on news with all these uh, dreams. And, you know, a lot of therapy is needed. That's why next week, uh, one way or another, whether we have a labor agreement or not, we're going to be hearing from fans. We're going to get, uh, you know, hopefully be a source of therapy for them. And I'm looking forward to that. And, and you know, the, the one part that really rang true was the fact that Mike Trout was holding a snow shovel because that's <laughs> Mike Trout lives for snow. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. Thomas Kennedy is up next at game 686. Thomas writes in 36 days. Seems very much in doubt, but I'm still counting. Uh, Jerry Koosman, hope I got that right, won 222 games over his 19 big league seasons and also amassed over 2,500 strikeouts. The Mets retired his number last year. Tom, mm, I, I like his uh, his optimistic denialism there. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. Katie Casey is up next at Tweacher Bleats. Katie writes in, why do you think a group of savvy business owners spend most of their time ignoring the deterioration of the product they provide and the request requests of their customers? Ouch. I complete. I completely agree with that. I don't. Here's the thing. I think that when we get to Monday, I think the owners will have won these negotiations. The players will not have a good deal. But here's the problem. Everybody's going to lose from 30,000 feet. Like everybody, the sport, owners, players, the product is going to take a hit. We've been talking about football on the baseball podcast. That's how you know things are bad. Uh, Last one for today, Lewis W. at ELU2718. Lewis writes in, Hi, Taylor and Buster. I made a Twitter account just to ask this. Last October, the Cleveland baseball team was sued for copyright infringement by a local roller, roller derby team. The complaint was damning. The case was settled quickly, but how did the baseball organization let it get that far? And Lewis attached an article that uh, says the team, the roller derby team, had a strong case. Um, I assume it was intern oversight. What do you think? Uh, Lewis, you mentioned that the case was settled quickly. I bet you the Cleveland baseball franchise leaders probably felt like, you know what? We'll be able to settle this quickly. We are going to write a check, um, assuming that's what happened. Alrighty, that does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. We've gotten a couple of people reach out about uh, next week's Bleacher Tweeter-centric uh, fan show. So if you're interested, tweet at me, send me a DM. We're going to put a list together. We'll whittle it down. So, you know, no offense if we don't pick you out of that hat. But uh, yeah, we're looking forward to that. That's it for today. My thanks to Kylie, Todd, Sarah, and Taylor, and all those guys that I talked to uh, when I was down in Nashville earlier in the week. They, uh, you know, I hope for their sake that they'll be able to be back on a baseball field as soon as possible. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, 
heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.